Hey everybody, I missed your faces. I got tan. Not as tan as I would like, but tanner than I was. Um, Edwin and Nate did a great job filling in. I think Edwin is here. At least he was on his way. Every week he's on his way. So he said he's on his way. And then Pastor Nate from Jesus Church uh, picked up the first uh, week that I was gone, or the second week I was gone. And it was fun watching those two guys. It's fun to be online and trying to watch them when you're traveling, because it was both on travel days. So it was choppy, and I couldn't understand everything they were saying, uh, so I had to rewatch them later, and they did a great job. It, we are going to be in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and it's going to be a lot today. I'm just going to warn you, when I have time off, I get more nerdy than normal. And I don't mean nerdy as in I watch Star Trek. Nerdy as in I have more time to think and read and pray and ponder. And the interesting thing about Daniel chapter 7 is that we're about to switch gears. So if you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Daniel. I like going through books of the Bible, just one verse at a time, one chapter at a time, so that my heart won't skip over things that I don't want to cover. I want God to guide us. And Daniel is such an important book today because it explores what it means to be a minority living in a culture that is against you. And increasingly, Christians, followers of Jesus, followers of the way, we are becoming more and more a minority, just like Daniel and his friends were. So if you are just now coming in, you're like, okay, can you catch me up? And I need to catch everyone up just so we can jump back into Daniel because we took two weeks off while, while I was on vacation. We have the Babylonian government, the bad guys, coming in and they took a bunch of the educated, the politicians, the royalty and their children, specifically four of them, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abadamigo, if you're Puerto Rican, and then it breaks it down for us, and the first chapter is the food. The, the Babylonians said, I want you to eat our food, and they said, we can't because it goes against our God. So there was this faithfulness to their God in the midst of living in a new culture. And then chapter two, we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Does anyone remember the dream Nebuchadnezzar had? Nebi's the bad guy, right? He had a dream of a statue. What was the statue made of? A couple things, right? Gold. I know some of you guys are like, I don't want to get this wrong. Don't worry. If you get it wrong, Jesus covers that failure. Okay? So, so we have this dream. And here's where I need you to begin to see something in the book of Daniel. There's a very unique pattern. It's one of the few parts of the Bible that's not in Hebrew or Greek. The New Testament is primarily Greek. The Old Testament is primarily Hebrew. Daniel chapters 2 to 7 are written in Aramaic. It's a totally different language from the rest of the Bible for the most part. And in this section, chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and we're going to look today at chapter 7, which is Daniel's dream. Chapter 3 is the friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were put before the statue, said, bow down before this statue or you will be thrown into the fire and consumed, and they didn't, and God rescued them. The fourth person showed up in the fire, and, and that chapter corresponds with Daniel's trial in chapter 6, where he gets thrown into the den of beasts, and God rescues him from the beasts. In chapter 5, we have um, Belshazzar's pride. Or chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And chapter 5 is Belshazzar's pride. Nebuchadnezzar became a beast and then eventually was restored when he was humbled. Belshazzar never humbled himself, and he ended up dying that night. And now we land in chapter 7. So I'm going to pray because we're going to read a lot. And it's going to be weird, like really, really weird. And if you've never read the Bible, we're going to read this passage, and you're going to think, what is going on? Because it's the dream. It's Daniel's dream this time. And it's going to talk about things like the beast and the end of times and what's going to happen and who are the main characters. And if you've never had weird dreams, um, I'm going to 
I'm going to share one of my weird dreams that I've had recurring my entire life. And if one of you has the gift of interpretation of dreams, maybe you can tell me what it means, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to read. Ever since I was young, I'm talking very young, five, six, seven years old, I have this dream where I'm running down an ivy hill that leads to a beach, and I'm being chased by Medusa. Now, I need to confess, it may be because my favorite movie back then was uh, The Clash of the Titans, and I'm not talking about the new one, I'm talking about the claymation one, like where the skeletons come out. You know, so that was the movie I watched. That and Jason and the Argonauts was like a close second. And there's this Medusa in there. And the, it's so funny because kids these days are like, like, oh, that's terrible CGI. And I was showing Silas is into shark movies. And I said, dude, we should watch Jaws. It's the original shark movie. And then I said, but it's going to look really weird to you. And he goes, yeah, they probably had really bad CGI back then. <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell him, like, it's just a dude with, like, a plywood shark mouth under the water. And this is what Clash of the Titans was. But that, that version of Medusa is chasing me down the beach. And it's in one of those dreams where you're running, but you can never outrun it. And then the sand starts to bog your feet down. And in my dream, there's always this safe haven that's right in front of me. And I can never reach it because my, my sand, the sand starts to grab my feet. And I get slower. And Medusa just cruises up. And then right before Medusa gets me every time, what happens? I wake up. And I'm panicking as a five-year-old. And as a 39 and 40-year-old, same dream now, but now Medusa's head looks like different people in my life, okay? <laughs> Don't worry, my wife's not here. She's not feeling well today. <laughs> it's a weird dream. And I, I've had this dream dozens, uh, probably hundreds of times. And I, I, I stopped watching the movie. I tried to watch the remake, like maybe this will get me out of this cycle. One of you is going to say, I have a word from the Lord after this, and I'm not going to like it. So um, you think that dream's weird? Wait till we read this dream. This dream is bonkers. It's bananas. So we're going to pray that God would speak to us because uh, I, I just titled the sermon, The Mark of the Beast. And it's not coming from the traditional passage, but it's, this is talking about the beast. This is setting up the people of Israel for 400 years of silence, looking for hope. How do we maintain hope and faithfulness when there's this culture, this government, this kingdom that's crushing us to the ground? And then this is the dream that Daniel has in the midst of this. So, Father, I, I need us, Lord to lean on you this morning. So help us to lean. Help us to knock away any presuppositions that we have. Lord, it's this type of passage. It's easy for me and it's easy for those of us who grew up in this thing we call church to, to load in our own definitions, to load in our own understanding and to not simply receive from your word what it has to teach us this morning about how we, God, can live for you faithfully with hope in the midst of any oppression that is here or that will come in the future. And, and I know one thing is sure, Lord, that when oppression comes, you are still God. When times of ease are here, you are still God. And I'm grateful, grateful for that. So I ask you, God, to, to tender, make us tender, make my heart tender. Lord, I pray that you would speak clearly in the midst of a very vivid and wild dream. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, the event is there. As always, the pictures are out there. You can scan those on your way in, and some of the scriptures will be up behind me. You guys don't have to try to keep up if you can't, but if you can, good luck. In the first year of Belshazzar, so we're going back in time now. Remember, Belshazzar died in chapter 5. 
So he's saying this dream happened the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. I hope you guys have wild dreams tonight. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What was stirring up the sea? Four winds. Who controls wind? Okay, just making sure we're on the same track. Uh, the word for wind is the same word for spirit, by the way, in the Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Like those three languages, they use the same word for spirit, breath, and wind. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. How many beasts? How many different metals were made up in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Four. Okay. So we're doing this, guys. We're getting nerdier today. Four great beasts came up out of, out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, and its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Sounds like there's a character. It reminds me of a character in the Bible who was forced to be a beast. And it grew something like feathers. And then the feathers were plucked out. But that was a few chapters ago. You probably don't remember. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And I looked and the wings were plucked off and it was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another beast, like a leopard, a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And, that, and this beast had four heads. So we have a lion with wings that gets plucked. We have a bear at a barbecue. We have a leopard with four heads and wings. Anyone have dreams like this yet lately? Not me. I have Medusa dreams. I have claymation dreams. This is wild stuff. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to this. After this, verse 7, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before. It had ten horns. A middle schooler might say, this is a horny beast. Did you guys miss me? I considered the horns. That's the last time I'm doing that middle school joke. You're welcome. I considered the horns and behold, there came up from among them another horn. So there's ten horns. And another horn pops up, a little horn. So it's a, never mind. A little one before which the three horns were, were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great. This is the weirdest dream, you guys. There's a lion that, gets, that has feathers that get plucked. And then there's a bear at a barbecue, eating ribs, and then eating things. And then there's a leopard with four heads. So it's the reverse of a deaf leopard. It's a hearing leopard with wings. That was just for the older people. And then, and then there's a beast. We're going to call it the mega beast. It's got ten horns. Horns were a sign of kingdoms, of power, of dominion. But then three of the horns got pushed out by a little horn that was covered in human eyeballs, and it had a mouth. I don't know about you guys, but if I had this dream... I'm waking up, and I'm calling a therapist. 
I'm buying a dream book. You see, the, this is foreign to us, but in the Bible, this is common. If you read through Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, even the Psalms, there are many allusions, and the Bible teaches us and says, look, this is what kingdoms are like. Evil people are like these great beasts, these beasts that tear down and destroy and they devour and they trample, but God humbles them. God will remove their abilities to, to fly. God will eventually come and smite them because in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we have the four kingdoms of this statue that were represented and they got weaker as time went on. And then it said a rock came from heaven and smashed these kingdoms that represented the kingdoms of men. And as we go through this, what we're going to see here in a moment is that Daniel's going to be pointing us to what's happening at the end of the world. And all of us in this room, for the most part, have our own ideas, our own definitions. And I want to encourage you today, if you think mine is wrong, the one that I'm going to show you from Scripture, then deal with Scripture. Don't, don't just say, well, I like the Left Behind version better. I like Kirk Cameron or Nicolas Cage, or I like this Left Behind series, or I like this way that they frame it. Let's just let the Scripture teach us what it teaches us. And when the Scripture is unclear, we shouldn't try to say, this is what it must mean for sure. Because this is very unclear. If you try to form a whole theology on the end of the world based on these beasts. In this dream... It takes a really cool turn. Verse 9. We just need to keep reading. I'm trying to get through as much of this chapter as possible. As I looked, oh, this is so amazing. As I looked at this beast, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the mega beast, we'll call it the mega beast, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Anyone remember that song, Ancient of Days? Someone sing me a little ditty. That's so cool. We have two people that were Christians in the 90s in this room. I'm loving it. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Sounds like a familiar picture that I've heard somewhere. His hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him and thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. It's interesting here, you have... Daniel getting these dreams. He's not sleeping well. If he's wearing his Fitbit, it's like off the charts REM cycles, okay? And these dreams are coming to him. And then he says, but I see the Ancient of Days, white hair, fire coming out of his mouth. He's here to consume and he kills the beast, the mega beast, the beast with the horns and the little eyeball mouth horn. He's in control. And if you are thinking about Daniel, Daniel has been in this journey, from the time he was a young teenage boy up to this point where he's having this dream with Belshazzar, he's in his 80s. He's old. And he's having this dream, and he's waiting for hope. He's saying, God, when will you restore our people? God, when will we get out from under the oppressiveness of this kingdom that we're under? We've been living with Babylon. We've been dressing like the Babylonians dress. We've been learning all of their education. We've been serving in their government as government officials. But God, we need hope. And God gives him this vivid picture saying there's these beasts, but the Ancient of Days is coming, and he's going to kill the mega beast. He's going to destroy the mega beast. 
and their dominion of the other beasts will be taken away. All of these kingdoms, because Daniel started with Babylon, and then the Medes and the Persians, and then after this is going to be Syria and Greece, depending on Greece, Syria, and Rome. And throughout Christianity, people try to decipher which kingdoms are which. Okay, the lion must be Babylon, and then the bear must be the, the Medes and Persians. This is like the Xerxes people think 300. And then after them is probably Greece. And then when Greece disintegrated, Syria came. And, and Antiochus in 160 BC, he did the thing that we all, that if you grew up in the church, you know that there's a story in the book of Revelation about some character who's going to go in and he's going to be the abomination of desolation. He's going to go in and jack up and destroy all of the, the sacrificial system in the temple. That happened in 160 BC with one guy. We don't know if he was the beast. But I know that right now, if you read Christian Twitter, which I don't recommend because it's not a real place, it doesn't exist, um, people will say, and have been saying, since I first became a Christian, like, oh, who is the beast? Like the big bad beast of Revelation, the end times beast. And people will do all these weird things with letters, right? Like Ronald Reagan. If you take this letter and the R and you twist it upside down, you square root three it, he's the beast. Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Biden. Like all, every time, and then all, sometimes they go deep. They're like, well, but maybe it's the Pope. The Pope must be the beast. I, I have to say something. It's, it may be, just maybe, that Christians are a little weird and get a lot of things wrong. Now, we don't know which kingdom is which, but we do know that God is going to come and he's going to put an end to all kingdoms with his kingdom. Does anyone remember what Jesus said when he came and began preaching? He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came to bring the kingdom. He didn't say, I'm bringing all of the kingdom later. He says, it's here. It's right now. This is the kingdom and it's coming through me. And we're going to see something amazing here. I just got to keep reading. You're gonna, if you want to dig in, there's verses here that you should study, but we don't have time to do it all today because I, to I need to get to a very important part. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Now, if you're a Jewish person, which I don't, our Jewish people left, they moved to North Carolina, but they're online today. So Jen, go nudge Matt and wake him up if you're watching. Does anyone know what Jesus referred to himself as more than any other title? The Son of Man. More than any other title. The, the Son of Man appears 88 times in the New Testament. Over uh, almost 80 of those were in the Gospels and primarily said by Jesus. Jesus himself didn't say, I am the Son of God, more than he said, I'm the Son of Man. Jesus himself didn't say, I'm the Messiah or the Anointed One, more than he said, I am the Son of Man. His primary title for himself was the Son of Man, and it is because of this verse right here. But what's interesting to me is that we, as followers of Jesus, because it's scary, it's scary to emphasize the humanness of Jesus, 
because we want to make sure everyone knows the Godness of Jesus, the divine sense of Jesus. So we, as faithful Christian people, Jesus, Son of God, Jesus Christ, it's a title, it's not his last name, he's not Mr. Christ, so if you, you meet someone that has the last name of Christ, that just means that they're the anointed one. Fun fact, at my kid's school, the first year they went there, there were two people in the office staff. One of them was Mr. DeJesus, and right next door to him was Miss Christ. And I walked down the office as we were enrolling our kids uh, at, at the elementary school, and I thought, this is pretty weird. Like, Mr. DeJesus and Miss Christ right next to each other. But they've um, since fired Miss Christ, unfortunately. Um, sad. Or, or let her go, or she moved. I don't know what happened. But the Son of Man says in Matthew 9, 16, 9, 6, and these scriptures are in the Bible app notes if you want to, I'm going to just rattle some off. For this reason, the Son of Man was able to forgive sins, Matthew 9, 6. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, that's Mark 2, 28. The Son of Man came to save lives, that's Luke 9, 56 and 19, 10. The Son of Man came to rise from the dead and execute judgment. At his trial before the high priest, Jesus said, I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. So Jesus is saying this, and these Jewish people at the time, they know exactly what is happening. Exactly what's happening. Jesus is saying Son of Man throughout his entire ministry. The Son of Man, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is mentioned in Ezekiel to refer to humanity, and it's mentioned in this prophecy saying the Son of Man will come, and he will have dominion over all the kingdoms. And in Daniel it says, the Son of Man went to the one, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and he said, I'm here and the Father said, I'm giving you all dominion. All that is will be under your authority. Well, that seems odd. Why would the Ancient of Days, a title for God that we've known, why would he give authority to someone else? Because that someone else is part of himself. It's the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus, you know, he doesn't play no games, you guys. The Son of Man... When he said it, triggered the Pharisees, specifically Caiaphas. And we, we need to keep seeing in this dream because this dream of Daniel is going to explain to us what Jesus is doing when he dies, when he goes to when he goes before the religious leaders, he knows exactly what he's saying to make religious people enraged. So in verse 19 of Daniel 7, he wanted to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying. With its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head. Daniel said, I want to know. God, I want to know. What's up with the ten horns? What's up with the claws and the feet and the, the teeth? And these eyes and the mouth that spoke great things, and it seemed greater and its companion. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth. This is where you get the one world government from. If you read end time stuff and you read Christians saying, eventually there's going to be a one world government, which may very well be true. But here's what's happening. I, I need to take one step back and just go to Bible school for, for 60 seconds. 60 second Bible school. There's multiple ways to interpret this. 
One of the ways is to have, the, it's like a historical, literal approach, where you look at the kingdoms and you try to analyze which kingdom in history back then fit which beast. Like, was there a kingdom that dominated the majority of the earth, like the Roman kingdom at that time? Because presumably when Jesus came and he said the kingdom of God is at hand, he was saying that in the face of Rome who had conquered the majority of the known world at that point. So is Babylon the first beast? Are the Persians the second beast? Is the third beast Greece and the fourth beast the Syrians or the Rome, the Romans? So that's one interpretation, is to find it all in history. The second interpretation, the one that you're probably more familiar with, is that you take these images and you say these are all future events. These things will happen in the future. None of them have happened yet as far as we know. This is where you get the idea that one day there will be this mega beast who will take over the world and it will have these horns of power, ten horns of power, ten kingdoms, with one horn that's louder and speaks for the rest. And that's where we would say, in the future, this is going to happen. We're going to see it crystal clear. We're going to understand that the end of the world is here because we see all of the signs. I just need to spoiler alert you. The, the Jewish people knew the Old Testament far better than we know all of the Testaments. And they whiffed on the first coming of Jesus. They had these books memorized that pointed to the coming Savior, that pointed to his virgin birth, that pointed to the fact that he'd go down to Egypt, come out of Egypt, go to Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, all of these prophecies. And they totally missed on it. So for us to think, well, now we are so smart as a people. We have exactly the layout and the plan for when Christ will return. It's a very arrogant stance. And, and I want to propose something. It, I'm going to propose something today that it's not just the historical interpretation and not just the futurist in interpretation, but rather Jesus himself gives us a clue. And I think we should cue on to what he says because he is Jesus, the Son of Man. This is what he says in Matthew 26, verses 1 to 4, and then 63 and 64. When Jesus had finished these sayings, when he's, when he's at the end, he's at the trial, he's, he's at Passover, about to get arrested, he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man, the human, the flesh Jesus, will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders and the people, elders of the people gathered in his palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, they plotted together. So Jesus says, the son of man's about to get betrayed. And then all of the elders, led by a guy named Caiaphas, are plotting together to destroy Jesus. You go and look in Daniel's dream, it says the beast worked against God's people. The, the beast was coming against God's people, against the son of man. I'm going to jump to verse 63. When they said, who are you? Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said, I adjure you. Caiaphas, the high priest, the person who's about to kill the Son of Man, the person who's making war against the Son of Man's life, said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you. So he says, you've said so. You've said that I'm the Son of God, but I tell you you will see the what? Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is placing himself in the role of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, which is why right after that verse, the high priests tear their robes, say, blasphemy, kill him. So if Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man, and, and it said that the great beast would go against 
the son of man, who is the great beast in this story? Starts with a K and rhymes with Iaphas. Caiaphas. Good job, team. Caiaphas is the beast in this story. You see, Jesus puts himself in the human role. And, and here's what I have come to believe and embrace from Scripture, is that you don't want to take the funky passages and try to create these very detailed, intricate systems that says this is how it must be. Otherwise, you end up being a clown that buys billboards up and down the California freeway saying the end of the world is coming on October 18th, 2019 or whatever. Little did he know he was a year off, two years off. You don't want to be someone who is saying, well, this beast must mean this. God told me it must mean this. And anytime you say God told me in a church setting, what you're doing is you're, you're eliminating any other future conversation because you can't Talk to if someone says, well, God told me this, and who am I to say anything different? But what if God told you something that's very dumb or that goes against his word? I've had countless people tell me that God told them to do things that I know for a fact God wouldn't tell them to do. I, I've had people sit in my office and say, well, God told me that I'm supposed to be with this person instead of my spouse. Like, God told you that? Because I've been reading this book for a minute. And I don't think that he's going to be like, well, I did say this in my eternal preserved word throughout thousands of years of history, but for you, Billie Jean, sure, go. No, it's, it's a dangerous game we play when God tells us things and we don't leave at least a moment for us to pause and say, is this, is this in accordance with the Bible? with what I know God has said. And if you're here and you're like, well, I don't believe in the Bible necessarily. I don't believe it's an authority. That's a, that's a whole different conversation. But in this moment, I want to I say this. Could it be that it's not just all future dreams and it's not just all past dreams? And that we see a cycle in history where there are small kingdoms and they eventually become this mega kingdom. Like let's say um, a world power, for lack of a better terminology. And then when that world power does what every world power throughout history has always done, whether it's Rome, whether it's America now, whether it's Greece, whether it's Babylon, a government or a kingdom or a ruler will get so powerful that they begin doing what Adam and Eve did in the first two pages of the Bible. They say, I'm going to choose what is good and evil for myself. And as soon as we do that, that kingdom begins to crumble. Sounding familiar, anybody? Gas prices, hello? Okay, moving on. It can happen with Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar says, I am going to choose right and wrong, good and evil for myself, and I'm going to dictate that over my people. And God humbled him, made him a beast, like a lion and a cow that ate grass and had wings and feathers for some reason. Or it could be Rome, who had the symbol of the eagle. And the Roman Empire rose up to great, great stature. And eventually the Roman Empire in 70 AD, they actually burned the temple of Jerusalem down and removed it stone by stone till there was nothing left. So all of these people in Daniel's time are like, we're going to get back to Jerusalem. We're going to get back to our temple. And they did. And it, but it was like a jacked up, not as cool temple as when David and Solomon built it. It was just a, some rubble that was put up. And then they finally made it back in Nehemiah and Ezra. And they're like, you guys, we did it. Now God's going to save us. He's going to send the king, the savior. And that guy's going to rule. He's going to come and sit in his throne. And they waited for 400 years, just twiddling their thumbs. And then Jesus showed up, but he didn't show up like the king they thought. He said, the kingdom of God is here, and I'm going to lift up the poor. Those who are oppressed, they're going to be following me. They're my people. The women who are abused and neglected and marginalized, they're going to be my biggest fan base. They're going to go out, and they're going to preach the good news to their friends. 
the people that aren't going to like me are going to be the religious and the powerful and the politicians because I don't play by their rules of getting more power. I play by God's kingdom rules of coming to pour myself out. You see, the, the beast, the mega beast, I can't say for sure what it is, if it's only all future, only all past, but I kind of land on this because in the book of Revelation, they use the term Babylon to refer to the great evil kingdom. But we know Babylon has been long gone at that time. But there's a cycle where a kingdom will come and the Bible will call it Babylon. In the book of Revelation, it was most likely referring to Rome that eventually raised Jerusalem to the ground. And then there's a time of peace. And this cycle will continue. And then one day, from what the Bible tells us in Daniel 7 in the book of Revelation, there will be a growing cycle of mega kingdom, mega kingdom, mega kingdom. And one day the great mega beast of all mega beasts will be here. And that will be the last time that this cycle will go of smaller beasts to mega beasts, smaller beasts to mega beasts. God redeems, God saves, earthly kingdoms build up again, choosing good and evil for themselves. And one day there will be a mega beast kingdom that will envelop this world with lies and hatred for God. And we're not going to get into it today, but all those things like what does the mark of the beast mean? Do I have the mark of the beast? Is, does Pfizer have the mark of the beast? It could be Johnson & Johnson. Personally, I'm an AstraZeneca fan. Okay? Anything that will send me to Jesus faster, sign me up. But this cycle will go and go and go. And there, it talks about a one-world currency. Wouldn't it be weird if there was a way for one currency to be tracked all over the world? I haven't read anything about that happening soon. Wouldn't it be weird if there was a group of governing authorities who said, you know what, we should really work together on these things. We should band together and just be like team world, globe. I haven't heard of these things. So maybe Bill Gates is the end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't get in trouble, Ryan. You just got back. The mega beast is like a set of clothes, an outfit that human kingdoms put on that says we are choosing good and evil for ourselves, and we're neglecting God's definitions, God's values, God's character. And the amazing thing about Jesus coming and saying, I am the son of man, is that he didn't come with his iron rod the first time and said, I am coming to win. He said, I'm coming, and he said, I'm coming to die. He didn't start the kingdom of God by saying, here I am, and he had all right and all authority to do this. This is why I wasn't Jesus. Because if someone's putting me on the cross and I had the ability to put lightsabers out of my fingertips, it's a game over. But Jesus came and he emphasized, I'm the son of man. The son of man. He emphasized his, his ability to die. He emphasized his humanness all the way through his ministry. Everyone else was like, you're God. You're the king. You're the creator. Who is this guy that commands waves? Who is this guy that can heal the blind? Who is this guy that can take the sick or the dead and bring them to life? This must be God in the flesh. And Jesus says, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man because it's crucial that we understand that the way of God's kingdom is to come in humility, is to come in service, and to come in sacrifice. When human beings when we try to be God, we get distracted and we act like beasts. It's just true. It's true of me. It's true of you. When we say, I'm going to choose good and evil for myself, we go all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, and instead of having authority and being with God and naming the beasts, we stoop down and become one of them, where all of our life becomes about our impulses. It's the one beautiful thing that humans have, is that we have this ability 
with this beastliness in us, this sin nature that's broken, that craves, uh, that craves love or, or attention or power or pleasure, all of these things that we were created with, but we're created to have them with God, and we just use them for ourselves. I want pleasure. I want, I want this for myself right now. And in that sense, we are each putting a little bit of that beastly cloth, cloth on ourselves. When humans, when we follow God, we're no longer controlled by our impulse and instinct. We get self-control. If, if you've ever been in nature and seen things in nature, they, they just live based on instinct. Sharks will eat what they want to eat. I, I, uh, I love uh, going, to, we went on our trip with a couple of the chapel family, and, um, and it's funny because I love the ocean. I will swim in the ocean all day. I love, like if I saw a shark, I'd be pumped. Gary, if Gary saw a shark, not pumped, okay? Um, and it reminded me of one of my first cool dates that I took Amy on. I took her spearfishing, and, um, and we were out. Like, we'd gone on dates before, but it was like, I'm going to see if this girl can, like, live with me in an end-time situation, okay? We went out spearfishing. I gave her the tutorial on land. Okay, here's how it works. You pull it back, boom, point it at the fish, death. If it's a big fish, you got to drive it to the sand, grab its tail, flip it up, put it up like a champion. Okay, and all, I gave her all that. So we go out. I didn't tell her that we were going um, in this beach called Kukio. It's like a notorious shark beach, okay? So I have the fish that we're killing. Like I'm, I get a bag, and it's tied onto a rope, and I let it float about 25 feet behind me. Big brains, okay? So if the shark comes, it gets those fish, not this leg. So we're out there spearfishing, and I'm trying to guide her along. And I know there's sharks everywhere here. Reef sharks, not too super big, like reef sharks maybe five to seven foot long, and then tiger sharks maybe 10 to 12 foot, okay? Just medium-sized sharks. I didn't tell her. She didn't know. She wasn't scared. She gets lost and separated from me. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, I haven't even married this girl yet. I'm gonna, she's going to get killed because of me, and I haven't even, well, we don't have a life insurance policy. Like, it's bad news. So I'm swimming around. Like, I'm thinking, she doesn't know what to do when a shark comes. She would freak out. Ah! And the reason I know that is because right before we got lost, I was trying to teach her how to shoot a fish, and with this big, beautiful uhu fish, I don't know what the white people name is for it, came up, and it was about this big. And I'm like underwater, like, you know, like giving her the sign, kill it. She swims over, and I was just watching her because we were dating. And, uh, and I'm like, get the fish. And she gets that spear, and I'm, you guys, I'm about to have the best moment of my life. Like a woman that I'm falling in love with is about to spear a fish Hawaiian style, okay? And she just lets that spear go. And that spear went at like two miles per hour. <laughs> and the fish, usually like when I pull my spear back, they run because they see business time right here. Like I'm here to eat. The fish didn't even run for my wife, you guys. <laughs> the sharp end of the spear poked the fish so gently, it still didn't even flinch. It just moved gently and kept swimming. <laughs> just like looked at her. And it was about 30 seconds after that that we got separated because we, she went around with some rocks and I couldn't find her. And then uh, at that point I was thinking maybe she does deserve to go out this way. Um, <laughs> and you're thinking, why would you tell us that whole crazy story? One is it's one of my favorite stories. It's hilarious that my wife can't kill a fish. So if the end of the world is coming and this is the last kingdom of all kingdoms or it's coming soon, like in a survival situation, my wife and I are done, okay? Because, like, if I can't go fish for things, I don't know how to do this land stuff you guys do. You'll teach me? That's cool. But, but those sharks, they don't, 
They don't pull up on you in Hawaii and think, hmm, I see that guy, but he looks nice. The sharks, they don't look at you and the fish behind you, and they, they have no sense of, well, that guy speared all of those fish, so I shouldn't take them. Do you know what sharks do when you're carrying a bloody bag of fish 20 feet behind you? They go for it. Do you know what you do? You unhook your rope and you swim away gently. Say, fine, you get it, you have it. Because I'm not going to fight a shark underwater. I swim at a maximum of like float miles per hour. I've seen tiger sharks chase down turtles. They hunt like raptors. Like the one looks at you and goes, and then its sister goes, I, I'm not about that life. I, I do the thing to tell you, like, look big. But you only look so big, like, I'm, this is all I am, you guys. I gained 17 pounds on vacation. This is as big as I've been as a human in my life. And this is nine foot. I've seen 14, 15 foot tiger sharks just mulling along the road. Uh, wouldn't that be terrifying? Sharknado, I met in the water. They don't care. If they want me, I'm dead. And that's what I told Gary. Gary, the shark knows you're in the water. If it wants you, you're dead already. So let's just swim, have fun, and praise Jesus. <laughs> he never went above his knee. Like his knee's like, I'm good. Good. That command is calling my name. <laughs> I would have put you on my shoulders, but that would have been weird, right? And I don't know if he's scared of the sharks or what it was, but but I, t I tell people, the sharks are here, they know you're here, and they're just, it is what it is. If they want you, they get you, nothing you can do about it. Now, I know none of you are going to go swimming for the next two hours, but um, we don't have to be this way. We are the one creature created in the image of God, and the image doesn't mean we look like God. The image means we have the essence of God, we reflect who God is, and we have the ability to say, all of my impulses that are self-centered, that want to choose good and evil for myself, because Lord forbid we only look at governments and kingdoms and rulers and say, I can't believe they would be so unbiblical, and we wave our finger at them. All the meanwhile, we're down here doing it in our own little mini kingdom called the Kingdom of Toronaville, the Kingdom of Jesse Town. We all make our kingdoms. And Jesus says, look, every human kingdom becomes a beast. Whether it's a mini kingdom we're setting up for ourselves. And when humans become this little mini kingdom, when we put on this beastly clothing, it looks like this. It looks like the moment where we give in to self-preservation at the expense of a human life. We say, I know this will hurt someone else, kill someone else, but I want this for me. I'm looking out for number one. And Jesus stood and said, this is the son of man. He says, I didn't come this time with all of my rulership. I came vulnerable. And I'm going to let you kill me. And from here on out, you're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Which is weird. Because the first Christian martyr, Stephen, as the rocks were pelting him to death in the book of Acts chapter 7, looked up and said, I see the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. What does that mean for you and I? It means this. Um, beasts, they only have a couple of weapons. Teeth, claws, paws. You can kill our body. You can take our rights, whatever right. But you cannot touch, no one can touch 
the eternal life that is on you in Christ Jesus. For I am convinced, this is another 90s song, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nothing nor heights nor depths, nothing can separate you from the love of God that you have in Christ Jesus. The thing that defeats the beast is the Son of Man who gave himself up, not the Son of Man who came and said, the kingdom of God is here, now I'm going to crush Rome. The kingdom of God is here, now I'm going to get my political advisors into the right places in the government. He didn't say the kingdom of God is here, now this is the person who must be the president. He said the kingdom of God is here. And then on his death row walk, he said, I am the son of man, sent by the ancient of days. You will take me now, and I'm going to give all, all of myself for people. Because the fact that people cannot be who I made them to be, I will be the perfection for them. I will lay down my life so that Brett and Corey, Jeremiah, Jen, Dave, Josiah, Gary, they, we now can say, I kept being a beast, but Jesus came and defeated the beast and gave me himself. So now I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to earn. The beast has been defeated in my life. The beast has been defeated in this world, and it's a dying dragon that's thrashing its final tail around. And one day, the presence of the beast will be fully removed. And that's in the book of Revelation, where it ties to this chapter. If you want to know what to do today, I would say, before you start fighting against those things that are way up there, realize that Jesus has already defeated the beast that lives right here, and surrender to that. Surrender to Christ and living in his way, where it's less about how can I gain power over my enemy and more about how can I lay down my life for my enemy. I had this moment this week where I, um, one of my kids got hurt. Can you guess which one it was? <laughs> my man. He was hanging up a hammock and, uh, and a dog, the neighbor's dog jumped up, bit him, boom. Blood and stuff, right? I'm still debating if I'm going to go to the family and say, look, either you give me $1,000 or your dog's going to die. No, I'm not going to do that. That'd be a beastly thing for me to do. No, no, they apologize profusely. The mom is mortified that we're going to call animal control. Little does she know I've been microdosing her dog with cyanide and chips every day since. Uh, never mind. I haven't been doing that either. That's the beastly thing to do. But I thought about it, just being honest. It's interesting, though, because... Um, they put up like this extra fence to keep the dog away so it can't jump up to where Silas got bit. And I keep thinking, like, I need to just love these people. And I went out to mow. And usually I just mow like all the space between the two houses as, as an act of kindness and gesture. And you guys, I literally, I've been doing this all summer where I mow their, their side too. I mow, I didn't do it. I mowed and I left a line of long grass next to their house because I was angry. And I kept getting everything, and I kept seeing it, and I knew why I was doing it. Like, you're doing this, like, really payback? Like, two and a half inches of St. Augustine? Like, take that, mean people? Like, uh, uh. So I literally mowed everything, and then I, I finally stopped and looked, and I said, you know what? I just got to do it. And I went and mowed their side. I got on my blower. I blew all the grass off their driveway. And this was the day after that their terrible dog bit my beloved child. And I, just, and, and I kept telling myself, and I told my stepdad, I said, I mowed, and I almost left their side. 
And he goes, oh, that would have been awkward. I said, I know. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. That's one moment where the, the beast, the beast that lives in my basement, tried to gain victory, but I remembered what Jesus did for me. Before you start railing and, and, and ripping on anyone way above us in some leadership position, start with the little beast that's right here. And remember that Jesus died to remove that beast from the throne of your soul and heart. And he says, now I reside here. So you can mow when someone hurts you. You can repay kindness when someone is cruel to you. When someone gossips about you at school or work, you can only speak highly and encouraging toward them. What would this world look like then? It's not fancy. It's not powerful. It's not flashy. It's not light. It's not full bands. It's just us being a little piece of Jesus more today than we were yesterday. This is how the beast will eventually be put down. Not by Christians with the greatest armies or Christians with the greatest moral stance, but by Christians who say, Jesus came as the Son of Man to die for us. We likewise now are images of that Son of Man come to carry the good news to a hurting and broken world. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I did not have to die because you died for me. I'm thankful that I don't have to prove myself to others because I am proven as holy before God the Father because of you. I'm thankful for each person in this room who I know, Lord, everyone in here has a mini beast trying to set up a kingdom in their own lives where they're the more correct, the more intelligent, the more beautiful, the more powerful, the more in charge. And it's so counter to what you came to do. Jesus, it, it bewilders me that you chose the title Son of Man to emphasize your humanity, I think knowing that we would spend the next 2,000 years emphasizing your divinity. Help us to know the reality that you are all God and all human in one beautiful Savior, friend, and King. Lord, remove the many beasts from our hearts and help us to be a sacrificial influence in this culture. Help us to be like Daniel as we have weird dreams and visions and prayers in the midst of a, a culture where we are becoming more and more a minority. Help us to know what it means to be faithful and live with hope because one day you will end the one kingdom that will rise up against you and with finality we will be with you forever. We look forward to that day in Jesus' name, amen.